right, if you would please uh, turn in the Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 to 6 on page 977. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. If you would please stand to hear God's word. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would please send your Sovereign Spirit upon us that you would open our ears and our hearts and give us grace, Father, that we might hear your word, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Or you can look in the program to page 8. And you'll find the sermon text written out, as we often do, try to do it every Sunday. In fact, this Sunday, we've got it written out in several versions. Uh, We have it, uh, the ESV version, the NIV version, we have the message version. And then something I've done for this Sunday, we have the Greek New Testament version. And I want to say thank you to Cindy Thomas, who uh, gave me recently, gave the church recently, and I'm using uh, her... Novum Testamentum Greke, uh, which I plan to use taking Greek 101 at Reformed Seminary starting next month. Uh, I took Greek 30 plus years ago, and uh, that's been a minute or two. And uh, so I'm taking it again, and I'm going to be using Cindy's copy of the New Testament Greek for Beginners, uh, Gratian Machen's, Machen's Brilliant textbook on learning Greek. Um, I'm doing it for a couple of reasons. It has been a while since I studied uh, Greek, the language of the New Testament, but also it just so happens that Reformed Seminary uh, has added to its faculty one of the premier scholars in the world of New Testament Greek and the world of New Testament studies, a man named Greg Beal. And Greg Beal is, uh, in my estimation, one of the finest Bible scholars uh, an expert in so many aspects of the New Testament, including and especially the book of Revelation. Uh, he's written several commentaries, uh, articles on Revelation that I have found to be enormously helpful. So I'm thrilled to be able to take Greek from one of the finest scholars in the world um, on this subject. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. As a matter of fact, I want to encourage any of you, I know one or two people in the congregation who are thinking about taking Greek with me. Come and take Greek with your pastor. Uh, We can have study groups. We can have late night study sessions. 
we can quiz each other on vocabulary and conjugations. Uh, Come along and join with me as we study the Bible in the language that it was originally written in. So this Sunday, you'll actually see, and I might try to add it in occasionally, the Greek New Testament for this passage. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, in the language that it was written in and that it's been passed down to us over the centuries. So you'll find it there on page 8 as well, or you can follow along on page 977. I would like you to follow along, though, whether it's in English or in the original language, because it's very important that you and we know that this isn't a few random thoughts put together by your pastor. It's not a few random thoughts the PCA decided to share with you or Metrocrest decided to share with you. This is the New Testament as it was written down for us and translated in the case of the English versions for God's word to us. These are, these are God's words and this is God's word to us. Each word is important, and so I hope you'll be looking as we go through here to make sure I get it right. And if you want to uh, make sure we wind up in the same place at the same time, you can follow along in the outline on page 9. Three points that I believe Paul is sharing with us here in Ephesians chapter 4. Three points. Number one, urgent instructions. Number two, a worthy life or a worthy manner of calling. Number three, oneness in Christ. Let's think first of all about uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let's think for a moment about this urgent message. Paul says he uh, urges the church in Ephesus. And through the church in Ephesus, he urges you and me to hear him as he speaks, as he writes. These are urgent instructions. Uh, that's a, a principle I'd like to spend a moment talking about before we dig into specifically what he urgently instructs us to do. The message of the Bible is urgent. And every once in a while, it's just really helpful to stop and pause and think about that. All too often, Bible instruction becomes something esoteric. Uh, sort of a debate society where we're talking about nuances of doctrine and we, we can get lost in details, we can get lost in speculation, we can have all kinds of fascinating discussions and never actually get around to hearing the urgent message which God has for us in his word. Here in this passage and generally, the message of the Bible is an urgent message. Paul's message to the church in Ephesus was an urgent message. And I'd really like in my own life and in our life as a church to regain that sense of the urgency of what God has to say to us. You can't listen to God's word with understanding and yawn. God has an urgent message for us through his servants. And here this morning we have an urgent message from Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, to the church in Ephesus. Let's uh, think for a moment about Paul's relationship with this church. I've made this point before. I want to make it again. 
Paul loved the church in Ephesus. Paul had helped plant the church in Ephesus. He had worked there. He had seen God do miracles there. Read Acts chapter 19 and you'll get a sense of what Paul had witnessed there in that church. How he had seen God miraculously at work. So he cares about that church. Of course, he cares about the church. You know, it's it's interesting about the book of Ephesians. If you look at... um, Ephesians chapter 1, the second sentence back on page uh, 976, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Uh, If you look at the footnote down at the bottom of the page, footnote number one, the first footnote for Ephesians, it says, some manuscripts read saints who are also faithful and amidst the words in Ephesus. There are actually existing manuscripts in Greek of this text where it doesn't say in Ephesus. Why is that? Why would there exist copies of this letter that are for, uh, there's clear evidence they're uh, original. Why, Why would there be examples of this manuscript, ancient manuscripts that omit the in Ephesus part? Well, they have a, an explanation for that. There are actually indications that this letter was not only shared with the church in Ephesus, it was, and there are many ancient manuscripts that include that, but there are also indications that this was what is called a circular letter. So it was the kind of letter where the Apostle Paul wrote not only to the church in Ephesus that he loved, but to many other churches there around Ephesus and other places where Paul would be writing essentially the same message, not only to the saints in Ephesus, but to the saints wherever they might be. And so he had this letter prepared in such a way that it could go to any church. And one of the things you'll notice, one of the unusual things about the letter to the Ephesians is it doesn't have as many of the the specific personal references. There are one or two, but there aren't very many personal references in this letter and again the theory is the reason that is is because the letter was circulated very widely and so what we actually have here is not only Paul's loving word to the church in Ephesus but Paul's loving word to the church everywhere now that's true for all of his letters but it's especially true for Ephesians and it's good to note that what Paul has to say to the church in Ephesus this urgent message these urgent instructions these are words that are urgent to you and me as well because they're universal words they're urgent words of instruction to every single christian and so we should take that to mind Uh, paul highlighting the fact he's a prisoner of the lord urges something upon us he urges us to listen to him now i love the english word urge Um, It it carries with it this sense of importance. It carries with it this sense of immediacy. We should pay attention because this matters right now. And I love the word urge. I love the word urgent. It's appropriate. And I do think it captures the sense of what Paul is saying here. Here Here's an urgent message for the Ephesian Christians and for you and me too. But actually it's not necessarily the best translation of the Greek word. So let's look at Cindy's Greek New Testament. 
the passage actually begins not with I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge. If you look at the Greek New Testament, look it up later, what you'll see is it begins with a Greek word, parakalo. Parakalo. And scholars have taken that to mean something like I, I uh, urge you to do something. I urge you. But the word parakalo actually means something very, very simple. It means to call alongside. Para, the Greek word for alongside, and kalo, call, means to come alongside and to call out. Now that contains within it this idea of urging, an urgent message. You're, you're running to catch up to bring this message. But there's another sense that's lost in the English word urge and urgent. And it's this idea of coming alongside. See, that's the way Paul handled his urgent message. He, he didn't blast it over a loudspeaker. You know, sometimes when I think of an urgent message, I picture a booming voice. Hear, hear this announcement, hear this announcement. You know, remember, remember the show uh, Lost? One or two of you remember Lost? We were... Our family watched the TV show Lost. And there was in that, movie, in that television program, there was a robotic voice that would, bang, 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 urgent, urgent. And if you know the story, you'll know there were some things they had to do immediately or there would be big problems. Well, it's possible to think of an urgent message in that kind of impersonal way. Sort of a loud, blaring voice yelling at you. Telling you to do something. Radio announcements. Announcements in gymnasiums come to mind. Just sort of impersonal. Well, the Greek word that's actually used in Paul's letter has a different context. It's a very personal word. It is urgent, but it's very personal. It's someone coming alongside us. It may not be yelled at all, but it's an urgent message. And the person bringing the message is exerting himself or herself, himself in this case, to bring this urgent message. And you see, that's really a helpful way of understanding the whole New Testament. It's not impersonal. It's not a blaring voice, disembodied, yelling instructions. Sometimes we think of Christianity that way. The world seems to think of Christianity that way. And all too often, it may feel that way. Impersonal, disembodied, disconnected, unfeeling. No relational context. But that is not the way the Apostle Paul ever approached his ministry. He, he approached his ministry in a calling alongside way. I think that's one of the reasons he mentions he's a prisoner for the Lord. He's not coming from a place of like the central headquarters passing down instructions. Sometimes the church is thought of in that way. We're hierarchical structure, sort of passing down orders. But Paul stressed here that he was a prisoner for the Lord. He wasn't someone who saw himself as lording it over other people. May God deliver us from the idea of leaders lording it over others. 
telling other people what to do in some disassociated way. That's not New Testament ministry. No, Paul gives us the example of a, of a person in the midst of his own struggles, in the midst of his own experience of hardship, coming alongside a group of other Christians with this urgent message. And the motivation for the message is not ordering people around and telling them what to do. The motivation for the message is relationship. He's doing this because he loves them. And the motivation for Christian ministry, rightly understood, is always love. Even if it's a hard word, and Paul's capable of using hard words. But even in the case of hard words, the motivation is always love. And he said that repeatedly already in Ephesians. So these urgent instructions which we're going to look at, we're going to dig into them in a moment, come from this place of relationship, this place of love and concern. What Paul is going to say to us, these words come from a place of love for us. So what does Paul, who loved the church in Ephesus and loves the church, wherever it may be, including Carrollton, Texas, what is this loving message, these urgent instructions? Well, he says, again, picking up in the second half of the first verse, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He continues in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, when I think about this idea of living a worthy life, uh, that's an expression you find over in uh, Philippians, the uh, next uh, book over. You'll see um, Paul takes up this same idea in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, let your manner of life be worthy. That's how he words it in his letter to the church in Philippi. I think it's the same idea, this idea of a worthy life. Paul says, in love, urgently, let your life be worthy. Let your, let your, uh, your life show forth the worthiness of the gospel. Let your life show a reflection of the gospel. Same idea, let you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Different words, but same idea. Whether it's calling or life, Paul says, do it in a worthy way. And I think that's a really important and urgent word for you and me. We are witnesses to Christ. The, the world around us will see the gospel through you and me through the way we live our life, the way we respond to our calling. People will see Jesus through us. And Paul says, let your manner of life, your, your calling, show the worthiness of the gospel. So what does a worthy life look like? I, I could make a little list. I think of things like not lying, not stealing, not hurting other people, not doing violence. I can think of a long list of knots. I can think of a lot of things I should do, being considerate of my neighbors and being a nice person, a kind person to my neighbors and all kinds of things I would like to do to live a life worthy of my calling. And maybe you'd have your own list. And those things come quickly to mind. That's, 
Is that what Paul's talking about? Living a life that's full of nice things and being polite and kind uh, and and, uh, being moral? I think that's wrapped up in it. But interestingly, that's not what he stresses. It's not what he stresses. In fact, he stresses the worthiness of our calling, the worthiness of our life in a particular way. He says, verse 2, to live a a life worthy of the calling which we have received, verse 2, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As Paul's writing to the church this urgent message in Ephesians, he's not focusing specifically so much on their moral life, as important as that is, and he he stresses that in many, many other places, but here his focus to this church that he loved and to the churches he loves, Paul stresses the, the life of humility, the life of shared commitment in the church, our relationships together, our commitments to each other. I've been thinking a lot about church life uh, lately. We're planning a new members class at the end of August. In fact, just a minute ago, I was talking to a uh, man who was saying, you know, I'm not used to this idea of church membership. It's not really something I've thought about very much. That's not been my experience. And I sort of think of church as you, you go to church. And I think that's certainly the way our culture tends to think of church life. You, you go, right? And I'm glad you come to church. But, you know, that's just actually one aspect of living a life worthy of our calling. It includes that. You can't do any of the rest if you never show up. But it's not about going to church. It's about being the church. And that's something that touches not only 10.15 to whenever the preacher shuts up and sits down. And we sing a few songs. and So it's not the hour and a half, two hours on Sunday morning we share together. That is the context for being the church. That's one tiny aspect of being the church. It's sad that to many of us, that's, that's all church ever really is. I go to church. I listen to a preacher. Sing some songs. That's what it means to to go to church in a lot of our minds. And yet Paul has a very different understanding of life in the church. It's something that we're called to be. It includes lots of things we do, but it's, it's, it's a process of being something. And he describes it in such beautiful language. Humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, eager, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. See, that's what it meant to Paul and what he wanted to urgently urgently call out to us to share is that idea of being the church, letting our life reflect what it is to be the body of Jesus Christ, to be the church. So it will involve all kinds of things. It'll mainly involve the way we honor the Lord by the way we honor one another. 
I think one of the great problems in church life today is that we don't have any sense of what it means to be the church. To actually bear one another's burdens. If you break down what Paul has to say to the church and look at the specific injunctions that he gives to the church, the specific urgent instructions he gives to the church, very little of it has to do with what we're usually prone to think of. Very little of it. Not that those are unimportant things. But the things that Paul stresses are the loving things. The patient things, the bearing things, the praying things. That's how we actually live a life worthy of our calling. It's being this community that is together and committed to each other. Our officers class has been talking a lot about the history of the Presbyterian church and our doctrine and our history and all those things and I love talking about it but you know what the basis of membership in the Presbyterian Church is the PCA the the basis of that is not the Westminster Confession that we love it's not our church history which we love it's not an institution it's actually a relationship built on Jesus Faith in Jesus, repentance, trusting Jesus. Those are the things that actually form the vows of membership in our church. And you'll hear more about that if you're thinking about joining MetroCrest. You'll hear more about that. And that is so countercultural. We live in a consumer age. We live in a consumer uh, environment where you just, you kind of shop around. I like this music. I like this liturgy. I like this preacher, I like this building, I like this service time. That tends to be the way we think of churches. It's a consumer mentality. Let me tell you, Texas, the United States of America in 2022, we're kind of the the capital of consumerist Christianity. There, There are so many churches to choose from. You can just go shopping and find anyone you like. And if you change your mind next week, you can go somewhere else next week. Tom Rainer's a writer MetroCrest has looked to before to get advice. He wrote a book called The Simple Church, which has been very helpful to us. Tom Rainer wrote about this. And he says, church consumers are not biblical. This is what he wrote. The local church is the dominant topic in the Bible after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. The dominant topic in the Bible. Indeed, he says, the entirety of the New Testament from Acts 2 to Revelation 3 is either about the local church or written in the context of the local church. He says, the local church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. Rainer says, I am a church member Member, I'm connected to my church. And he says, sometimes I need to be reminded to act and think like one. That's what Paul's urgently saying here. Act and think like a member. I mean, the whole word of mem- the whole idea of membership is so cheapened for us. It's you join a club and you become a member. Member means body part, right? You don't, you don't 
chop off your arm without much consideration. It's certainly not something you approach with a consumerist idea. I can do without my arm. I'm just going to chop my arm off. That's unhealthy. That is not the way we're supposed to think of church life. We are members. We're connected. And he said that over and over and over again in the letter to the Ephesians. He's running alongside to tell us, be a member of your church. Be connected to your church. Make promises and let the church make promises to you. And then you live it out in that context. Now, that doesn't mean you never change churches. There are all kinds of good reasons to leave churches. You move. Maybe the church loses its way. Maybe the church becomes confused theologically. I could write a book about that. Maybe you could too. You know, there are reasons you have to leave a church. But it's not ever something we should do lightly. It's never something we should do like a consumer shopping around looking for something I like a little more this week. No. Paul says, live a life worthy of our calling and that means Actually, be committed to your church. Be humble and patient with the other people who worship God in your church. Put up with them. Put up with them. And let them put up with you. That's an urgent message. I think it's a really urgent message to the church in 2022. The third message in this urgent set of instructions and it has to do with oneness or unity the ESV editors who I generally very much respect titled this chapter unity in the body of Christ and I took that as the name for the sermon and I stand by that but I'll let you know the word unity doesn't actually show up in Greek (laughs) that's not the word it uses the word it uses is actually oneness that's a Greek word Bear with me, Cindy. Okay, you may have to teach me how to say this word correctly. Henotna. Henoteta, I guess is better, oneness. And it starts with this word hen, which is the Greek word for one. Oneness. We have oneness. And Paul goes on to, to talk about this idea of oneness. He says, he says, Uh, Verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Every time you see the English word one, there's a Greek word hen, one. And what Paul is saying is uh, there are all these different aspects of the oneness which forms the context for church life. And the oneness is not the oneness of an institution. It's not the oneness of shared experience and background. Paul's written a whole letter so far about the diversity of the church. Greek and Gentile alongside those with Jewish backgrounds. So it's not a oneness that comes from one shared cultural background or even one language or one ethnicity. No, the oneness he emphasizes, that oneness is the oneness of Christ. That forms the basis for our unity. We're not one in our Presbyterianism 
We're not one in our being predominantly North Americans who speak English. We are one in Christ. And nothing else ultimately matters. Our oneness in Christ, in His, in His once for all atoning sacrifice, our one faith in that, the one baptism which points to that. It's a great principle in the idea of one baptism. We don't have multiple baptisms. You don't have multiple baptisms in your life. If you do, there's been a misunderstanding at some point, either what you were taught or what you've been led to believe. No, there's one baptism because what it's pointing towards is him and Jesus and what he's done for us. And so we have one baptism in him. We have one faith that's grounded in him. And yes, we have one God and one Father of all, ours through the adoption we have through the one Jesus Christ. And we are now formed together as one in his body. Regardless of where we come from, regardless of what our language may be, or our ethnicity, our history, the mistakes we've made, regardless of all those things, by the Spirit, we are made one in Christ. And let me tell you, if we have oneness in Christ, then we have the context for being the church that God wants us to be. This urgent message is lived out in the context of that groundedness in the oneness of Jesus. That's urgent for you and me to understand. You know, I, I love the PCA, I love the Presbyterian Church, I love Reformed Churches, but I am one with Christians who know and love Jesus, believe in Jesus, worship Jesus, seek to be in communion with Jesus. I'm one with them. They may live in a different part of the world. They may have a different denominational affiliation than I do. We may have lots of discussions and debates. That's okay. But we are one with all those who are one with Christ. And there's enormous generosity in that. Enormous generosity. We learn to be patient with each other. We learn to tolerate our differences. We learn that some people emphasize one thing and we emphasize another thing and we discuss it. And we seek to learn from each other. We seek to grow because we're one in Christ. And so there's this great generosity and breadth Paul's already talked about the length, the depth, the height, the breadth of the love of God. And so there's great breadth, great generosity in the oneness we share in Christ. And yet at the same time, there's great specificity. Because we're not one in Baal. We're not one in a higher power. We're not one in an anti-gospel Jesus. We may share the same denominational title for a time with them. I, I lived through that. I lived through that. Maybe you have at one time or another. I, I was part of a denomination where their understanding of Jesus was not my understanding of Jesus, was not the Bible's understanding of Jesus. And no matter how much institutional loyalty we tried to muster, if there's not oneness in Jesus, then we're not one. As Christ understands it, as, as Christ calls us, as Paul urges us. 
Now we will find our oneness in Him alone. Our theme today is in Christ alone. And that's exactly right. In Christ alone do we find our oneness. So there's breadth and there's also great specificity. It is in Jesus Christ alone that we find our unity. So Paul urges us to heed these words. And you know, I've said before, we're at the the cusp of our 35th year. We're looking ahead just a few months as we begin our 35th year of life as a church. God has been faithful and gracious to us for decades. He has provided for us. And now we're looking into the future, this season of growth. What is the urgent message for us? It's to, to find our oneness in Jesus and to keep our oneness in Jesus and to lock arms, to stand together, loving each other patiently, humbly, as we seek to go forward. That's my prayer for us. It's my prayer for you, for me, for our families that we would find our oneness in Christ.